Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week, and show notes are found at 805connect.com. Hey, please subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. The show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. And thanks to our podcasting partner, Polstring Press, for this great studio. And to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hey, good morning, Mark. Hey, Patrick, I'd like you to meet Adam Ben-Shia. Hello. Hello. Uh, Adam completes a trifecta <laughs> with the Ben-Shia family. We've had your dad and your sister. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And uh, I... Uh, I just I love talking to y'all. I gotta <laughs> say it. I've I've known your dad for over thirty years, and I think we, we we just hit like we, you know how you know when you meet somebody and you mm-hmm. just you're there immediately sure. within eight seconds, uh-huh. and uh, that's been one of the great friendships of my life, and I've been mm. it's been great to meet. Um, your sister and and work with her and now to meet you. So nice. welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. You're a professor. Uh, lecturer, but yes, yes, I teach. What's it. the difference? Uh, <laughs> here, we, here we go. Hold it. Is it we're going to start just like that? Yeah, yeah. You can get into uh, the technical definitions oh, of, what of employment. Why not? <laughs> sure. So it's uh, different positions are based on tenure track and seniority, and it's a pretty. Uh, pretty dull kind of conversation. It's the dullest oh, yes. conversation ever. And it's why you usually, it's 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 always that you take that pause when somebody goes, oh, you're a professor. And you take a little pause where you're like, okay, so I have to clarify. <laughs> okay, got sure. it. So so you lecture, so, I, so you talk for a living. <laughs> I profess, I lecture, I speak, I teach, I do all the above, yes. But you also... Um, you're like a, you're a black belt in jujitsu. That's correct, Brazilian jujitsu. Probably not one black belt. What are you fourth don? No, fifth don? <laughs> just a black belt. Yeah. 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 We don't really have the dons. There are degrees that come up in Brazilian jujitsu, and they're becoming more common now as uh, Brazilian jujitsu is kind of expanding in the United States. I've been a black belt in Brazilian jujitsu for uh, going on ten years now. Really? Yeah. But how will you know if you're getting better if you don't have all sorts of extra flags on yourself? <laughs> stripes and stuff. Don't I, you need stripes to know? Yeah, I think that helps. I, one of the things that's interesting about, would you say you live a martial life? Um, well, how, how are we thinking about martial in the form of combat or war or martial in the form of? Frame of mind. Frame of Cause mind. Because I'm, I'm a uh, second on in Hapkido. Right. And got my first done when I was 53, mm-hmm. so late in life, mm-hmm. and have thought about extensively and written about the effect that being on the mat had on my life off the mat. Okay. That's the, more the question. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, I think I, I apply lessons that I learned from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to my life. Um, one of the lessons that I remember learning in particular, maybe about 12 or 13 years ago, was knowing when to hold on and when to let go. Mm. One of the things that's mm. very important in, Br- in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is knowing that there are times when you need to grit your teeth, be tenacious, have perseverance, and continue to move forward. But there are those other instances where if you hold on, it becomes self-defeating. Mm. And that can be helpful in, in business relationships and personal relationships. So that's certainly something that I've learned from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And there's you know smaller lessons that I'll, I'll continue to think about. As is the case in whatever you're teaching, 
often I'll learn these lessons while I'm teaching them. It's only when I'm teaching that I think I have a, or I develop a more comprehensive, a robust understanding of the Why topic. do you think that is? Um, uh, one of the ways in which I first kind of saw that was when I was in Indiana University, where I received from where I received my master's, um, I was teaching a complete beginner jiu-jitsu class for the Department of Kinesiology. And uh, on one of the first, or during one of the first weeks there, I was teaching a, a relatively basic armbar called the Kimura. And a student asked me why it worked. And my initial reaction was, it just works. This is a stupid question. Let's move on. But in, in sincerity, <laughs> I couldn't give that question. I, I think if I was going to be a, a good teacher, I couldn't give that question. So I thought about it. And this caused me to kind of go in another direction and start thinking about, okay, why does it work? And not only did I figure out why it works, but I found out a better way to do it. And as mm. a, um, a, a byproduct of that has now been that there's an element of constriction of your body that I think about more often than not when I'm applying almost any submission. And the catalyst for that was a simple question or what some would see or frame as a stupid question. Mm. I think when somebody asks you a question, it causes you to, to reflect back on it and address some of the things that you do kind of intuitively. And in that, you you learned something. Absolutely. Yeah. There's uh, we've had lots of teachers mm -hmm. on the show. Uh -huh. I, mean, we, I love talking to teachers. Nice. But in whatever whatever that looks like, because uh -huh. um, I, I feel like that there's two sides of that coin. You're a teacher one second, and then boom, you flip, and you're the student. If you're right? a good teacher, I think, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. we only talk to good teachers <laughs> on this show. Well, that's so wonderful. I don't even know the other. Well, then I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. I'm humbled to be here. Yeah. So, where do you teach? I teach at Cal Poly, uh, San Luis Obispo, and then I teach Brazilian Jiu Jitsu also at, uh, locally here at Paragon, where I've been affiliated uh, since 1998. I started teaching there back in 2002, and I went away for a number of years for graduate school and then came back and. And, and tell us about what you teach up at Cal Poly. Cal Poly, sure. I teach in a uh, religious studies program, which is a, a subdivision of the philosophy department. Um, I, I teach a number of courses there. I've taught courses on um, Islam, monotheisms, uh, one of the more popular ones that you and I were mentioning before the show, religion and violence. Uh, this quarter I'm teaching Judaism and religion and contemporary values. But religion and violence is probably the most popular um, for a number of reasons, and one of the ones that I enjoy teaching most. What are the reasons? Um, students are more engaged. Uh, huh. One of the reasons that they're more engaged is that what we're discussing in the classroom is very easily applicable or is very easily seen in what's in the in the news or yeah. um, showing up on their, their media feed or showing yeah. up in their Twitter feeds. I don't yeah, know it's exactly one of those. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, I think that makes it interesting. And uh, I, I just really enjoy it. I like finding patterns more than anything else. My training. What do you mean by that? Sure. Um, my training is as a textualist. My doctoral dissertation. As a what? A textualist. Okay. So I work with texts. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> What's a textualist? Sure. So I work with texts in particular. Texts. Sacred. So that was plural. Correct. Yes. Okay. okay keep <laughs> going. <laughs> keep, sure. Keep, keep going, Prof. <laughs> so learn, uh, learn me something here. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can do. Uh, you're sounding very Mark Twain-esque. Learn me something. <laughs> um, so uh, my doctoral dissertation was on the Quran, but I did comparative work between the Quran and the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, in particular looking at the development of prophets through dialogue between the two texts. And the way in which I address this very large corpus or body of work is finding patterns. 
what are the things that are repeating themselves exactly or repeating themselves with slight difference. In the two texts. Correct. And the presentation of these prophets. In particular, I was focusing on, on Noah and Moses and to a lesser extent Solomon. So I think repetition is important. Locating repetition. Um, again, repetition that is exact, and then repetition with slight differences. So you find those same kind of repetition or patterns in acts of religious violence, and that's like really? oh, that, that's what I like bringing to my students, is looking for these overarching ideas. And so some of the patterns that show up is, for instance, the stage, uh, where the event took place is, is generally pretty crucial. Um, the nature of the actor, as far as how they see themselves, is pretty crucial. One of the things I tell my students on the first day that more often than not they're pretty amazed by is that every individual that we look at in that class, every uh, religious extremist, first and foremost sees themselves as a victim. They see themselves or the tradition that they represent as under attack. As mm. a consequence, they mm. feel an obligation, a duty, a moral requirement to take up arms in defense of this faith commitment or this religious tradition. So I, I like finding these patterns and showing the way in which that they're not localized just to one religious um, path and they're not localized just to one uh, instance of religious violence. It just hits me that I'm curious about, you know, there, there's all, I, I instantly went to the Crusades mm. and I thought about that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, of course all the current violence. But I was just thinking in the sub, so what is uh, Indian continent and Buddhists and, and mm -hmm. that, all of those, I don't, I can't think of a Buddhist war. Sure. So uh, one of the things that my students will look a little bit at are, are some recent instances in, in Myanmar or Burma. There are certainly conflicts going on between Buddhist and Muslim communities there. Not the focus of the class necessarily. The focus of my class is a little bit more on the Abrahamic traditions. Uh, in particular, what we look at is um, the recent acts of uh, American Christian violence. Um, in particular, mm. look at some of the abortion mm. clinic bombings, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. some of the extremist movements, Timothy McVeigh, his connection to groups like the Covenant, the Sword of the Arm. Was that a religious thing? So he's kind of tricky as he very clearly identifies himself as, or at least toward the end of his life, he identified himself as, as an atheist. Uh, but he had connection um, with some religious groups. And one of the things that we notice as far as a pattern is that the day matters. Uh, more often the day. Than the day. The day becomes very powerful. Ultimately, for many instances of religious violence, um, they become a form of religious practice. And in the same way that certain days are designated as special inside of a religion because they're a holiday, for instance. Sure. At this point, we're in between um, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are very important days in Judaism. Certain days are designated as important inside the realm of religious violence. So Timothy McVeigh committed his act on April 19th. April 19th was a very strategic day as this was um, the beginning of the, the battle of the, the American Revolution, Concord and Lexington. Mm. It was also a day that was very important as it was um, a day in which Richard Snell was planned to be executed. He was somebody who had been uh, a, a fa or an early leader of the CSA, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm. And he um, had initially actually planned on bombing the Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City, but had not had the opportunity to fulfill that. So when a particular day is chosen, 
it sends a message along with the violence. And the reason that Timothy McVeigh had chosen April 19th was not just to show a degree of ideological continuity with Richard Snell, but also ideological continuity with a sort of constitutional notion of American freedom hmm. that he thought thought was being infringed upon by the American government. So he thought he thought he could carry that credential with him forward. Exactly. So one of the things that you see more often than not, and this isn't peculiar to religion, but you see it most uh, most clearly in religion, is that there will be periods of stress or anxiety. And during those periods, there's this, this idea to have these instances of, of cosmic or sacred time. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, if you've ever seen an accordion, and an accordion conflates and inflates, that's exactly how sacred time works. So you have a period under stress, and when you have a period under stress, there's a desire to return back to an idealized golden period. You mm -hmm. see that with the Islamic State right now in the Middle East. There's a period under stress in the last 15, 20 years in the Middle East. As a consequence, there's a desire to return back to the initial founding period of Islam. Which but, was when? Sure. So the initial founding period of Islam is 7th century. Okay. The Islamic prophet Muhammad lived from 570 to 632. Upon his death, there is this transference of political leadership to an individual named Abu Bakr inside of the Sunni tradition. This individual, Abu Bakr, became the first caliph or political and to lesser extent religious leader of the community. The current caliph or leader of the Islamic State has changed his, has changed his name to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Mm. He takes the name Abu Bakr to show very clearly that there is this conflation of time, we can think of as cosmic or religious time, conflating back to the 7th century, the time directly after the death of the Islamic prophet, and showing that there is then continuity. And the reason that this is done is to show that in the same way you have these trials and tribulations now, there was trials and tribulations then. The way in which it was solved then is the way in which it can be solved now. And so you're seeing Timothy McVeigh doing that, saying, look, we're having this large British government in the 18th century that was taking away all our rights, and what do we do? We revolted against that constricting mm -hmm. government. It's the same thing we should do now. Now, we see a similar idea when you talk about the Tea Party movement in the yeah. last 10 years. You see, a, an, uh, you see a, a American society under anxiety or threatened with uh, economic distress as a, as a product of the sure. subprime mortgage loans some 10 years ago a little bit less than 10 years ago. And there's this desire to return back to the constitutional period, a de desire to turn back to foundational American yeah. ideals. <laughs> the founding fathers right. gets right. just thrown around constantly. Right. So you have a period under stress. Anytime you have a religious or a political community under stress, there's a desire to return back to a golden early period. And that, it, do you see that? How do you, uh, give us some other examples of how you see us as a society right now because it feels very stressful right now. Okay, so what do you? I'm sorry. Uh, what do you I'm mean? I'm just thinking. Uh, you know, the, the sh I don't. We don't get into politics, but we don't. <laughs> and we don't get into, no, only be, only because things sure. change, and the person might be the person who's listening to the show sure. right now. It might be April 2018. Sure. You know, it, I don't know. So if you're should, fortunate, you get to change. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You get to develop as a person. You yes. want to be an organic being. Yes. yes. Yeah. How about how about does it does it work? Like to you to do, do, have you found in your research or in your just kind of observations? Mm -hmm. Does does is that I mean did, it didn't did it work for Timothy McVeigh? Was he able to manifest some kind of change towards uh, towards what he was was hoping for? Um, I, I think it brought awareness. Um, I think any time you see an act of religious violence, the first thing that happens is that that message is covered by the media. That mm -hmm. message is covered more and more by the media as we have more media outlets with social media, with uh, with Facebook, with Instagram. 
I don't know exactly about Snapchat, but I think that would work in a, in a similar, same, yeah, in a similar same, format. Same, same thing. So uh, I think it does work. And the reason that it works is because each of these acts are, at the end of the day, their messages. Um, uh, Mark Jurgensmeyer, the local professor at UCSB, uh, in his book had interviewed a number of the key uh, leaders of Hamas, the Palestinian resistance group, terrorist group, based now in Gaza. And one of the things that was mentioned during his interviews is that they see their suicide attacks, their, their bus bombings in particular, uh, in Israel as letters to hmm. Israel, as huh. letters to the Israeli government. And I think that's a, a good way to think about it. I'm not, I'm not by any means justifying these acts, but I think from an intellectual standpoint, that's a, a helpful way to approach it. As you see that each of these acts of violence are from the, the part of the person carrying out the act, it's a religious message or a religious letter that they're sending to a very clear audience. In the same way when you write a novel or you write a text message or you write uh, a traditional snail mail letter, you have a te intended audience in mind. Hmm. This right. is the case with religious violence. When you commit an act of religious violence, you're committing it on a day, usually at a place, in a right. manner that will draw as much attention as possible, right. and you have an intended audience in mind. So when you think about Timothy McVeigh, it was important that he was attacking the federal building as he was the federal building, unsurprisingly, was a symbol of the American government. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was mm -hmm. trying to draw attention to. No, I just, I'm yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, uh, we have another guest who's got us thinking is what's happening. Yeah, right? it's We're well, all just, I'm sorry. No, okay. no, no, that, no, <laughs> no, please don't apologize. That's because, well, it slows us down because I, it, one of the other things, sorry is, to make you think, yeah, you guys, way too early in the morning no, for no, that no, kind no. of activity. Thank you. Sometimes when we come up against, uh, and not against, but like when we, when we invite an expert into the room who, who clearly has like just it, uh, such a wide amount of information about any given topic. We, we get into that point of like, okay, well, I want to ask the best question there ever was about this topic. <laughs> and, and, then, and then you think, oh, he's already been asked this question, so ask the second best question. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm just thinking about, um, well, just that, that not, you know, it, it, that, that letter that, that uh, I've a never bomb heard is. it even thought about that. Yeah, and I think, I think, but yet people stand on the on the podium at the news conference and say this senseless act of violence. Sure, it's, and it doesn't and sound. It wasn't senseless. It wasn't at senseless all. At by all. no means. Um, I think that's one of the things. First of all, I commend you for looking for a good question. One of the things <laughs> that I think is at issue. Uh, uh, just small tangent here. Yeah. Uh, my students are a little over ten years younger than me. In yeah. theory, we should be of the same generation. Sure. Um, but we're worlds apart. There's this large gulf, and that large gulf is. I know what it's like to grow up with um, dial-up wire uh, dial-up. Yeah. Uh, internet uh, connection, yeah, yeah. and they have this ability to have instantaneous right. answers at their fingertips. So, so for them, I'm not trying to get them to find an answer. I'm trying to push them to find a good question. So yeah. I think it's wonderful <laughs> that you guys are good looking for, for good yeah. questions. Do you think, on a, on, okay, on so a side sorry. note of yeah. your side note, because uh, yeah. <laughs> I... down another tributary here. Right. I, I, I do, uh, I usually do uh, my lecturing in the art department. Okay. And uh, I have found that, that in the exact same way, they don't record the answers that you give them. Like like they don't they don't program it in so mm. they'll ask a question even mm -hmm. and or on a topic or whatever and you'll 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 explain yourself or uh -huh. explain the topic and and then you find that they didn't they were just like oh okay I'm just glad there's an answer out there I'll find it again when I need it oh they just went into the stream and they moved on yeah they just added it to their stream of consciousness and then they moved on they don't they don't retain what you tell them sure um, I think it depends on the students yeah. um, I think there are some students that are sometimes seen as quote unquote more successful. 
And those are the ones who are very good at figuring out what it is exactly the, the teacher, the professor wants to wants to hear yeah and they're good at playing the system and, and they're uh, generally um they're generally going to go places in the world um uh, i guess but I, I prefer the students that are that are sincerely interested in the why i'll get mm-hmm, some students who'll mm-hmm. come up to me after class uh in particular after something that's you know kind of a charged lecture like the arab israeli conflict yeah. and they'll they'll have these like burning questions and it's very clear that this is after the midterm, so it's not necessarily for a test, but yeah. they just want to know. Yeah. And those are the students that I, I really like the best. But the students that are either disregarding the answer or just charting that off, okay, I will remember this for the midterm, then I'll disregard it for the yeah. rest of my life. Um, I, it's harder for me to make a connection with those students. Yeah. But but they're still at college. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, that's the that always would get me is I would I would I would just kind of look. I'd say, "Hey, you know what? Why don't we uh, Why don't we crack ten minutes early today?" And sure. they would just all scoop up and 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 take off as fast as they could get out of there. And then there'd be one kid left over, and I would just be like, "You're the only one who like wants to wants to." We had to clear everybody else out so, so we so could we can talk. talk. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. Just because it's it, it's amazing to me to watch these the, the engagement and like it's like this duty that they're they're at their job. It's a checklist. Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. just and as soon as I get to get out of class, I get to get out of class. Get back to my real sure. life. Sure. And this and isn't like, all the students. There are some. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 I, I got into what I do because. Because I really do enjoy teaching. And I remember being a student at, at UC Santa Barbara. And it, that's where I really kind of became engaged with the discipline of religious studies in particular and learning in general. Um, and it was great when I could have a, a teacher that I, that was someone I could talk to. Was it? Was there? Could you identify a particular professor or semester or something? That sure, I, I worked with a, a number of different professors there. Uh, Richard uh, Richard Hecht was pretty uh, oh, yeah. influential. He uh, was my advisor for my senior honors thesis. Uh, another professor who's not, I, I would say, real well known locally um, because his expertise is very uh, specific. I think it's. Northwest Semitic languages. I took Hebrew Bible with him. We were translating Genesis, and then I, I, I had to take some other courses, so I wasn't able to take Aramaic with him my senior year that I really wanted to. Is uh, Randall Gar? He was mm. uh, a no-nonsense kind of guy. You had to have your Hebrew verb paradigms locked in for your for that class, and if you uh, if you got something wrong as he went around the class, he would buzz you. Uh, but I, I really liked him a lot. He was because he expected a lot from all of his students. He he expected a lot from me. He expected me to do well in his class, and I, I do well in those circumstances. I do well under under a disciplined or in a disciplined uh, format, and I do well when people expect a lot out of me. Do you so. think that's a rare and rarer thing? Um, <clears throat> or has always been a rare thing, or as far as well, like in the in the current population of this emerging generation that you talk about, that we're trying to always avoid right. calling mil- millennials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I, I learned technically. I'm I'm right on the. Um, I was born in 1980, so I'm in between Generation yes, X. Yes, you are. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's you, exciting. You, you for a long, bubble boy. Yeah, yeah. for a long time, <laughs> like John Travolta. Yeah, yeah, for a long time, you were an undefined uh, generation that, yes. that hadn't hadn't yes. developed a Lost language. Lost their way. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm like the Jack Kerouac. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, I think there is some entitlement. I think that is, you do see that, but there's discipline. Uh, I think it really has to do with the experiences of the given Mm -hmm. individual, their given student. Um, For me, one of the things that was pretty powerful was becoming involved in wrestling. I I wrestled Mm -hmm. at Dos Pueblos and um, with uh, Coach Hart, who was the kind of longtime coach there. And then later, uh, Anthony Califano came in as the coach as well. And both of them um, were, were really helpful in showing the way in which you work hard and you'll have success. I remember one of the things that that Coach Hart taught me really early on, 
he was both a wrestling coach and also a history teacher. So he was very influential in a number of different ways in my life. And he told me there's only two rules. Uh, everybody fights and nobody quits. That was the only two rules of wrestling. And, you know, it seems kind of silly and kind of crude maybe even. But I remember when I was going through my, um, my written exams for uh, my Ph.D., and those written exams are no fun. You have, for instance, you'll open an email in the morning and the professor will send you something at, say, 8 o'clock. You have the next 12 hours to write about that topic. And that's all you're doing. You're sitting at your desk and you're writing for the next 12 hours. And that's very stressful. And uh, then you have another professor, he gives you 24 hours. So you're not sleeping. You're just writing for 24. And then you have your, the next component is the oral exams where you defend what you write. And one of the things that, uh, as far as a mantra that I would reiterate in my head is I have two rules. Everyone fights, nobody quits. I just keep moving forward, and I'll get through this. And so those kind of simple lessons have, have at least for me, served me well. And I think if students have had that similar kind of training, um, it, can, it can allow them to have a discipline which bears fruit in their life. So it really depends on the background that they have. I don't, I don't want to make a gross generalization about a whole generation. Well, that reminds me of the tenets in our school, which come from Musashi, uh -huh. and the one is perseverance. Sure. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I remember my daughter, who is a caterer, okay. calls me up, and now she's uh, the mother of my grandson. Oh, nice. Which is most important. Congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> thank you. And... Uh, she'll be. She would be whining. This was years ago. She'd be whining about the day, how the day had gone. Uh -huh. And I said, "Oh, well, this is what perseverance looks like." Yeah, right. You and sure? so I, I, I think that's one of the hallmarks that uh, it's a through line we see with a lot of people who are successful that are sitting in this room, uh -huh. is that they have there's some bit of perseverance, whether it's called grit, whether it's called whatever. I mean, your your T-shirt says, "Everybody fights." Nobody quits. So yes. it's like you don't get to stand on the sideline and watch people. Sure. You've got to be involved. Sure. And you don't get to quit. I'm not a great spectator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got that. I, <laughs> I, I love that. I love that concept of saying like I'm just – I'm kind of terrible at not just being in it. Sure. So one of the things that I've learned in my life is I, uh, I'm, I'm not great at quitting. It's real hard for me to quit. I've failed a lot. Sure. There are some people who say, I no. never failed. I've failed. No. I don't know how many times in my life I fail all right. the time. Um, but I'm not great at quitting. And, and going back to something you were asking me at the, at the, the beginning of this podcast um, was you said about uh, a martial way of life. Right. And I was explaining one of the things that I learned from um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was the importance of knowing when to hold on and when to yeah. let go. Yeah. And so these two kind of uh, personal philosophies, I guess you can, you can call them, can be at ends with one another. Yeah, um, as one of the things is everybody fights, nobody quits. There's times when you have to let go. That's not quitting. And that's important that you realize that kind of uh, nuanced way uh, uh, of saying letting go isn't I'm out of the fight, so to speak, or I'm giving up. But it's just I'm not holding on to this particular battle here. I'm not holding on to this particular grip, but I'm still engaged in the activity. That's a, such a key lesson. I think so. Right. It works for me. If it works for others, great. No, no. Yeah. I, know. I, I had a visual a little earlier when you were talking about when we have an expert who so clearly got this <laughs> grasp. I, I, I don't know why this picture came up. It was a picture of Half Dome. 
and I feel like your body of knowledge is half dome, <laughs> and I'm trying to crawl up, and I'm just looking for the tiniest little finger hold, <laughs> right, as I'm free climbing up to try to figure out oh, where. You're, you're, you're climbing. Can you walk up half dome? Isn't there like a hiking path or something? <laughs> See, oh, that's I guess. the kind of thing. <laughs> I think you my know, mom hiked Yeah, if you just, just go around the backside, Mark. You know, oh, darn. When you find there's a place a to bus. drive the Jeep, yeah, the bus that goes up. Yes, I mean, what there's, about, there's um, different ways of going up <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't mean to be disrespectful. That's the best lesson of nope, There you go. Yeah. Adam, I want to know about um, teaching. Uh, so so if, you're in, if you're in a religious studies uh, department and okay. you're teaching... Uh, a rel- about a religion that you don't practice, sure. Because because mm. you're, you're th- just from your list, I'm like you couldn't possibly be practicing all of those. Sure. Um, how do you how do you approach the idea of of teaching about a subject that is kind of the other to you? Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the questions that sh- comes up inside the discipline of religious studies is the kind of inside outside question. Um, does it matter whether you're inside the tradition or outside the tra- tradition? Um, my classes at, at Cal Poly just started a couple of weeks ago, and that's a, a question that I pose to my students at the beginning. We start nice. to think huh. about it. Um, for me, I, I, I recognize that just like anyone else, I carry what I refer to as cultural baggage, and I, I try to be as aware of that cultural baggage as possible. One of the things that I think separates me, at least from some of the people that I've met in religious studies, certainly some of the people that I was previously uh, had as cohorts during school, is that I don't have a real axe to grind with religion one way or another. I wasn't raised in a really religious household, and I wasn't really raised in a format where I had a, a strong um, inclination to take a stance against religion. The mm-hmm. thing that absolutely fascinated me about religion was... I really, I really like the stories. I like mm. the stories oh. and I like the characters. Uh, I'm a kid that grew up watching Star Wars, as mm. anybody in my family uh, will remember. I used to introduce myself as Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Did and, you? <laughs> and, you know, as anybody that has read Joseph Campbell, I'm strange. I actually still read Joseph Campbell. He's kind of out of... Uh, out of style now. Um, we, lo- we love Joseph Campbell <laughs> on the show, just so you, you're among friends. <laughs> That's nice. I feel like I'm in the Corleone family. Um, <laughs> so um, so uh, with, with, uh, with that approach, you see that these are myths. These are stories that are powerful. Yep. They're evocative. And they give you navigational points that you can work into your life. And I don't see that as being peculiar to one religion, be it Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. Uh, the tra- traditions that I work with the most. My primary field is is Islam. That's not a, a religion that I was brought up in. Nonetheless, I became absolutely fascinated, not just with depictions of the life of the Prophet Muhammad, which we know who we know a lot about, but also the way in which so-called biblical prophets are presented inside of the Quran. I thought it was great the way that they're developed through dialogue and they have a very robust image of, say, Noah that you don't get in the Hebrew Bible. Huh. In the Hebrew Bible, Noah only says one thing. <laughs> he, uh, he damns his son Ham after Ham looks at his nakedness. And this is a great lesson about the way in which there's going to be instances in your life figuratively or literally where you'll see your parents' nakedness and you should look aside. So the Hebrew Bible huh. provides that one instance of dialogue. When you meet the same guy Noah in the Quran, all of a sudden he's downright loquacious. He's having back and forth with God. He's having this very powerful back and forth with his son, who's a a quote-unquote unbeliever who won't come on the ark, which is a great rhetorical tool, come on the ark. Um, So I, I really like that, and I just... That in of itself brought me in. So for me to think, okay, I'm outside of this religion or I'm inside of this religion... 
I don't necessarily think about that as much as, wow, this is a great kind of next step in the story. This is a great kind of next chapter in the story. So if you, you were brought up with Star Wars and you're introduced to, you know, episode four, then all of a sudden there's a prequel here. Right. So, and then right. there's a, a sequel or, you, you know, I just... And Jess mentioned the Corleone family. Well, there are people now, uh, I think it's Mark Weinberger, who's continuing the writing of Mario Puzo and saying, yeah. what exactly happened with the Corleones in between Reno and uh, Godfather 3? And this is absolutely fun. It's not the best. It's not as great as writing as Puzo, but it's like, hey, I, I like this story. I don't want to mm-hmm. hear the rest of it. So I don't just attach myself to Puzo. I don't just attach myself to run religion. I attach myself to the story, and I want to know how that continues across traditions. The minor text, the major texts. Is sure. this... Because you're a textualist. <laughs> I guess. That's my primary training. Those are the, the professors who I worked most closely with when I was at Emory um, have strong training in text. And that's something that I, I tried as much as possible to learn from them. Yeah, but if we read a text, aren't we just automatically going to become whatever that text is? Like just, I, isn't that what happens? When I, you sure as hell hope, <laughs> I sure as heck hope not. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's at your discretion. I mean, there's a number of different ways in which you approach a text. Um, you can approach a text certainly from a literal perspective, but that has um, all kinds of pitfalls waiting around a number of corners ahead of you. Um, you can also approach that text and think, okay, how can I reap of something of benefit from it as it serves me? Um, there's a number of different hats that you can wear when you when you read uh, a sacred text in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like like the Star Wars. There, the, uh, sure, but I mean, what I mean, another, yeah, no, another way of thinking it is, okay, um, I read sacred texts in my class. I teach in a public university. Uh, I don't teach theology. Um, and what mm-hmm. I mean is I don't begin uh, with some kind of base assumptions about the nature of God or even necessarily the existence of God. Uh, That's I, not your job. It's not my job. I, I sidestep that question. I say, how is this text developing its own unique agenda? How is this text making its own claims on religious truth? How is this text um, developing um, scenarios, narratives, um, type scenes, archetypal characters that serve the overall agenda of itself? And that of in, in of itself is a target-rich environment, to borrow a term from, uh, I think, Top Gun. That p- gives us plenty to work with. So... Um, now, you could wear a different hat, of course, and say, theologically, what's the lesson being learned here? Sure. Or you could wear another hat psychologically. One of the things that I remember learning, um, actually, from uh, a professor by the name of David Blumenthal, who is a, a well-known professor, one of the founders of Jewish studies, he said, if you don't understand something in theology, you put it into psychology. Hmm. And what he, he meant by that, or the way in which that's developed is, when we talk about God, certainly in a Jewish context, you're talking about something that is infinite, ein without end, as it's called in Hebrew. Obviously, we're finite beings. We have these physical bodies, this physical room that we're currently in. So how do we start to comprehend something outside of ourselves? It's incredibly difficult. So the way in which you do that is you start to put it into parameters that make sense to you. Mm. You start to say, okay, well, we can give a voice, but even more so, we think about the relationships that we have with the people around us and then we attribute those to God. So we start to have a psychological relationship with God rather than a theological one, because a psychological one is one we can comprehend. So I think when you talk about religion, there's absolutely a psychological element there. Now, when did atheism start? When did atheism start? Uh, it kind, yes, of, kind of feels sure? like you know, when you read the ancient, it was uh-huh. all about the religion or all about yeah. that. That was such a big part of it. 
I, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. Where atheism there's not a great, great text that goes along with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can say something else along those lines. One of the things that's very interesting um, is that you're seeing a rise across traditions of people who are increasingly individualistic in the way that they process the religion. Um, so we were just talking about Judaism, so I guess we can stay on that strand. Um, there was a Pew poll that came out in 2013, and it looked at um, a number of people who identified as Jewish inside of the United States. And one of the things that it found was that there was a clear division between those who were Jews of religion and those who were Jews of no religion. So we've talked a little bit about generations here. Going back to the greatest generation, um, they found that around 7% were um, Jews of no religion. Now, moving forward to this millennial generation, they found that something near 32%, if I remember correctly, um, identify as Jews of no religion. So they identify culturally as Jewish, but they don't necessarily identify as religiously Jewish. Huh. They don't necessarily believe in God, but they still feel themselves as part of this cultural tradition, or what I like to think of as this religious story, this Jewish story, and they put themselves in that. So They'll actually Judaism, say that even if they self-identify I'm sorry? As atheists. So they could self-identify as atheists, but to them that's not mutually exclusive. That doesn't mean that they're that's no longer Jewish. Huh. And that's not just in Judaism. Uh, the Pew Poll also had a recent huh. uh, uh, poll that they put out about the rise of the so-called nuns. And that is people, not nuns as in, in UN, but nun as in religious nuns. They um, show that there is a rise of people that are either atheist or agnostic or maybe don't identify with any religion in particular, or maybe treat, treat religion, not to be trite, but treat religion almost as a buffet line. You move along with your tray and you take what serves you from each religious tradition. In the same way in say the 1960s or 1970s, there was the emergence of the Jubu. When you talk about uh, the movement with like Ram Dass, the idea of a Jewish Buddhist and this notion that mm. <laughs> there's certain Jewish theology that you then work with Buddhist ideology. So in the last, I guess, what are we talking about? 50 or 60 years, you have certainly seen an increase of people who have a stronger um, sense of individuality when it comes to their religion. And this manifests itself in a number of different ways. It could be a rise in um, people who identify as atheists, which we, we certainly see. Um, but there's also more people who identify as spiritual, not religious. Right. And when you right. think about that, what that really rests on is that they're not inside of a specific religious institution. More and more they're taking the religious teachings or the aspect of the religious community that serves them. And then they're um, using a sense of, of agency to say, okay, this is how I'm going to apply this into my life in a very kind of unique way. And as it, <clears throat> because I, I hear that a lot, because everybody wants to be politically correct. Sure. Right. So they'll say, well, whatever it is you believe in. I, I, I didn't take the low hanging fruit if this is an election season where we're talking about everyone will be politically yeah, no, correct. No, no, Sorry, no, 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 no. But I, sure, I mean, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're trying to be. Uh, maybe not politically, it was sensitive. Sure. Like, as I don't know what you believe, so I'm going to say, sure, I'll say important. something. So yep. we'll say <clears throat> whatever it is you believe. <clears throat> is it that you believe there's something that's not you, something that's bigger than you, something other than you? And that's how so, you would identify. Right. The religious worldview, the religious slash spiritual worldview really rests on the notion that what we have in this world is not all that there is. There's something greater than ourself, and there's something greater than this world. There's something beyond, something meta, if you want to think about it, beyond this world. And that's really what religion or spirituality at its core is, is looking to address. 
I was as as you were talking about the 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 buffet line or the the jubu conversation, sure. um, and I was thinking about how many Christians I've heard uh, on TV say uh, karma, mention karma, uh-huh. you yeah. know, just kind of like, sure. well, that's karma, and you're Throw like, but casually, I yeah. don't think you, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was I was thinking that that there have been instances that I can I can relate very clearly where where people were taking and 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 modifying the religion from uh, Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. You know, taking the part of the religion that he wanted to, and you know, creating sure the Reformation, the yeah. Reformation, yeah. and then I think about like Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. uh, and and the more the Mormon sure. movement, uh-huh. and and this idea of like, w- well, we li- we like what you got going on, but we're going to take, and then and then Mormonism turning into Latter Day Saints and all sure. sorts of other um, more elaborate versions sure. of itself, where it's 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 like this religion hacking, where you're just going to like. The way in which oh. I, I think about it, um, before the program, you're asking me, um, just a little side tangent, you're asking if there is any kind of, uh, I, I have, what was it, the writing gene, but not the business gene from uh, from right. my family. Yeah. And I mentioned uh, that uh, I had co-authored a series of books called Jailhouse Strong. It was actually, as I said, uh, my best friend who I grew up with here in Santa Barbara, Josh Bryant. He's a well-known power lifter. Um, in, in the world of strength training, he has a as a, a big following. And so uh, we've come together and, and authored a series of books that um, have sold well. And as a consequence, we've kind of moved into another direction with uh, generating T-shirts, and we have a, a new line coming out shortly. Um, now, one of the things that we write about, one of our books is called Jailhouse Strong, the Successful Mindset Manual. And one of the things that we talk about very strongly is this notion of the individual over the institution. Hmm. And when you talk about a Joseph Smith or you talk about any of these religious reformers, what you're really talking about is an individual who feels that the institution has become antiquated, has ultimately developed a life of its own, so to speak, where the initial charismatic spark that was shared by, be it Jesus, Moses, or Muhammad, or Steve Jobs with Apple, as Apple certainly has elements sure. of a religious tradition sure. uh, attached to it. Um, there's now an institution that has moved past that charismatic spark, so there's going to be someone inside of that group that says, hey, let's return back to that kind of initial great idea. So one of the things that you certainly see in religion and you see in any kind of large group is moments where an individual is taking on the institution. And I think those are, those are important, as if nothing else, they at least inspire a sense of, of almost what you can think of as passion. And that can be a good thing, but passion can, of course, be negative as well, going back to the conversation about religion and violence. Well, this is, you've hit on this particular theme several times, mm-hmm. right? This expansion contraction piece, right? It's like Timothy McVeigh, let's call attention back to, uh, you know, the earlier the Constitution. Right. Um, I want to dip in just back to the this idea that the the bombs were letters or there's messages and but mm-hmm. I can't say that I've ever heard anybody talk about that in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Like so, well, what is that message? It's just well, it's just the, if you were to ask them to ask that question, we're going to get a superficial answer. Sure. H- how should interviewers maybe? I mean, because that's that's like a really interesting point. It's like they're trying to send us this message. Uh-huh. What was that message, mm-hmm. and and why don't they say that they were sending a message? Well, they they do. I mean, I think for instance, okay, so you know, people will ask me uh, when I when I travel uh, on an airline, I'm. I'm a reader. I'm a bibliophile through and through. I love books. So I'm always reading something. And often it will be something to do with religion. So people will strike up a conversation with me. And I've had all kinds of interesting conversations on on airplanes. 
And uh, one of the things that uh, people will ask about most recently, of course, is Islamic State. How do you handle Islamic State? Sure. How do you address sure. this? And from a policy standpoint, I, I can't speak to that. Um, from another standpoint, I think what's important is the narrative. Right now, uh, Islamic State is very clearly having a strong control of the narrative, and it's a narrative that is emotionally evocative for a number of people. And there's been attempts by, say, the State Department to retake the narrative online. Yeah. There's been attempts to release videos that will uh, combat, so to speak, the recruiting of Islamic State. Um, but one of the things that not a lot of people necessarily talk about is to really address the narrative, you need to have an understanding of the narrative. Mm. So one example of that is, what is it, maybe four years ago, five years ago, there was a video that was you know, terribly disrespectful that was released on YouTube about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. This caused all sure, kinds of issues, sure, sure. and uh, President Obama at the time was, you know, should we allow YouTube to to, to keep this video online? Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that really nobody was talking about, I, I was invited as a, a, a speaker, a guest on HuffPost about this uh, with some other people, and one of the things that nobody was really talking about is we know a lot about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. We know his favorite foods, we know his childhood, we know um, physical characteristics about him. And the person who made this video, a guy down in Cerritos, um, he knew a lot about the Prophet Muhammad too. And what he did is he constructed a narrative that was as disrespectful as it could be. But nobody was really saying, okay, how do we work with what we know? And this is something that I think is very important. So when you look at religious violence, there's quite a bit out there as far as the religious argument is concerned. We're not looking in my class, for instance, or when we have this conversation, we're not looking to have um, uh, any kind of uh, apology for the act, but we're looking to understand the act. So you're saying the, the argument of the letter isn't there? Sure it is. You can look at the 1998 fatwa from Osama bin Laden. You can read it online, and he spells out very clearly a three-part argument why he's taking issue with the United States. He's talking about uh, American support for the state of Israel. He's talking about the way in which there's a United. There's American boots on the ground in Saudi Arabia, and he sees this as a, a form of infiltration or invasion of American forces, which he strategically refers to as Crusader forces. In this kind of classic example of of conflation of cosmic time, so the audience will listen. Oh, in the same way the Crusaders mm -hmm. come here, these mm -hmm. Americans mm -hmm. are coming here. So there's these these arguments that are out there to be read, and they certainly have an intended audience. And from an intellectual standpoint, again, they're really interesting because they are. Really and they're full of illusions, uh, historical illusions, religious illusions, literary illusions. Um, and I, I think those are important to address and understand them. And once you start to understand, okay, here's the argument here. Because when you understand the argument, then you can start to have a dialogue. Then you can start to have a conversation. The dialogue that's currently existing is obviously a dialogue that's premised on, on action, and co uh, in particular violent action. When you understand the language that's driving that action, you can then start to have a conversation on the level of language. Wow. Uh, and, and on that, I can't say professor, but I'm okay. going to say lecturer. Okay. Adam, yes. that was amazing. Oh, okay. I mean, we, we went, the boom, our time is, oh, is yeah. evaporated. Shoom. Time flies Wait, when talk, you're having fun. Talk about the, the conflation of the, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Sure. 
Um, how can someone find out more about, I mean, do you write online? Um, so I, I don't necessarily write a whole lot. Every now and then I'll, I'll write a jujitsu article that that is <laughs> online. Um, I, I live in a, a couple different worlds. So sure. this is sometimes some of my students will Google me and they'll want to ask me something about jujitsu or ultimate fighting or, or jailhouse strong. Um, so I, I am available uh, for anybody that wants to have a conversation. Just my first name, my last name at Gmail. Perfect. Um, and then we have a, a website for the books, Jailhouse Strong. Um, and then I, I occasionally give uh, public lectures um, on the topics of religion. Uh, generally, in the last couple of years, it's been up in San Luis Obispo. Is that's where I have my kind of connection with the university there. Th- this has been fascinating. I've oh, learned good. so much. Thank a, you for having me. A, that I did not know <laughs> that Noah was in the Quran. <laughs> Had no, sure. this, this yeah. you know, there Shows you go. quite a bit. And I um, took religious studies in the eighth grade. Oh, nice. And uh, that was a whole... Back when Muhammad was alive. <laughs> Thank you. No problem. I, you said it Thank up. You. I had to tee it up. Come on. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, it was, nice. It was fascinating. It so is. I'm so yeah. glad that I'm you partial. were yeah. here to join us. Um, one of the things we do on the show is we, we try to give a, a title to this conversation. Oh, okay. Having this great conversation. What would we call this conversation? I, I don't know. I'm not great at titles. I don't know. But you get to pick. <laughs> he gave he gave in the first two minutes of the show. Oh. What did I give? Everybody fights. Uh, no. no. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I like that. This That's is it. A, oh, I knew it when he said is, it. This is you, an homage, as soon as you heard that. This yeah. is an uh, homage to uh, Galita Dos Pueblos legend, uh, Coach Mike Hart. He's retired, living in Utah. The guy was an incredible uh, renaissance right. man. He uh, was a history teacher. He... Uh, made his own cannon when he was in college. Of course he did. He would load his own bullets. He was a, an accomplished watercolor painter. He was one of my early kind of <laughs> love strong mentors. Yeah. yeah. He, yeah. Uh, yeah he make sure great. you send this episode to him. Uh, I will if I can get a hold Adam, of him. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Uh, I also want to um, thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press, for this great place to have these amazing conversations. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, send us a note to partner at 805connect.com. Hey, Patrick, how? Yeah. So someone's listened through this whole thing. They yeah. probably paused it a few times just Good. to cogitate on that. Just, just, just to Google somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, how could they help us? Well, uh, you know, b- besides just sending us a letter to let us know if we're doing this uh, correctly or doing it in a way that, that makes sense or, or is meaningful to you, uh, we love to hear your feedback. Um, of course, the things I always say, I say it every week, um, rate, write, review, give us a, a, a quick subscription, get your friends to subscribe. Um, that way, uh, you'll all know what you're talking about when you're standing around the water cooler going, did you hear that thing about religious studies? Oh yeah, my me gosh. too. Uh, so yeah, so get subscribed and uh, get your family members subscribed. And, uh, you know, it's been a while, but, you know, give your mom a call. She's waiting. I, I would love to hear from you with um, specifically if you've got questions or an idea for a guest for an upcoming show. So you could drop me a line. Mark at 805connect.com. And thank you very much. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.